hello and welcome back to break the stigma i'm so excited for my guest today like i am every week but i would love to introduce to you helen rose so she was in the queensland police for 11 years and left due to ptsd she was diagnosed and told that it would improve over time i'm not going to take it away from her because she does an amazing introduction and does tell her own story but she has had an incredible journey and she is now living in Adelaide and developing a mental health app called Mental Mentor to start the conversation surrounding mental health. This is in its finalising stages, so we're very excited for it to be released. So everyone, please enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome, Helen. Um, If you could just do a really quick introduction for me. Oh, thanks, Jasmine, and thank you for having me on your new podcast. Um, so my name is Helen Rose and I'm an ex-police um, officer from the Queensland Police Service. Um, I was with the, the service for 11 years and uh, I did three years in general duties and then about eight years as a um, covert intelligence officer, um, doing some pretty high-level drug and, and fraud investigations with the Australian Crime Commission and the Federal Police. So saw a lot, heard a lot and know a lot, um, as a lot of police officers do. Um, and in my second year as a police officer, I was based at um, Nambal Police Station on the Sunshine Coast. Um, and I was a doctor cop at the school. I liked to do the community work as well with the kids. That was always fun. And um, I was first response to a stabbing murder of my daughter's best friend. Oh, wow. um, she was 11 years old. So I'd started the shift, it was a a. 6am shift and I got a phone call uh, and I knew the voice, I just couldn't place it Um, and I was known then as Constable Helen because my surname was two words and (laughs) too difficult to pronounce so and then if I didn't want people to know my surname I'd say the whole thing. (laughs) That's so good. Um, and I picked up the phone and uh, the voice on the end of the phone was very, very um, wavered and, and said to me, Constable Helen, come quick, I've stabbed my daughter. And I tried to get a name out of, I just couldn't place the voice and I tried to get a name from her a few times and, and, and she just wouldn't say it. And so I managed to be able to get her address off her. Um, and I knew, I think as we know in police, sometimes you know when things are you know, are real, mm-hmm. or if it's, you know, sometimes you get those mental phone calls where it's just not actually what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So I grabbed my partner, we ran out the door, um, and on the way um, to the location, the comms operators came across and told me who was at the address. So it was at that moment in time that I knew it was my daughter's friend. Um, I placed it, uh, and the traffic would have crew would have been very proud of my speeds I did that day (laughs) taking the corners at um ridiculous speeds but um anyway got there and the mother was actually standing in a kitchen with a very large amount I know we always say large but large um kitchen knife that had blood on it um and she had a few superficial wounds on her wrists and in her sternum um and so my partner and I disarmed her straight away and then uh, he stayed with her and I just ran through the house trying to find uh, the little girl and um, so ran through and I was calling out 
I didn't get any response. And then I walked into her bedroom and um, she'd been stabbed 28 times um, oh gosh. by her mum. Uh, and in the end, with the coroner's report, she'd actually, I think what had happened, she'd been stabbed in her sleep and woke up and then tried to fight back. Um, so I got her at the time she was only just conscious and struggling to breathe so I got her into a position um, that seemed to be enable her breathing and, and ran out and, and, and called emergently for ambulance to attend and, and the appropriate backup. Um, I went upstairs and it's funny at the time with emergency services when critical incidents happen and the chaos that unfolds, but in a professional way. And, mm. and my partner had been on, the ambulance had run the phone downstairs and my partner had been on to the phone to the ambulance and they had given him guidance and information on the first aid to provide to the little girl, which I didn't know because at the time I was out at the car. So then we'd cross paths, come upstairs and I walk in the door and he's administering first aid and, and she's screaming and I've just gone, my God, what are you doing to her? And then, you know, and then he just said, it's okay, you know. And so uh, the little girl was only just hanging on um, and I'd known her since she was one. And so I just said to her that I was there, you know, Constable Helen's here, like just you've got to just hang on. Um, and there was a moment there where her eyes like just focused at me and and we had that connection, um, which was a pretty powerful image that stayed with me and still stays with me today. Um, and it also gives me comfort that she knows that at that time that I was there fighting for her. She was taken to the hospital and unfortunately, um, so that was at 6am and at about 11am she'd passed away. There was one wound that um, ultimately took her life, um, unfortunately. And um, so throughout that time, I was with the mother um, who had stated to me that she'd had to kill her child that morning and, and basically how she'd planned to do it, which was really difficult for the AMBO officers to hear because she was saying it in the ambulance off, and then I had to listen to it for about three hours at the hospital, Yeah. Um, which as a mother with a daughter the same age, I guess like did my head in, in the fact that it was just torture listening mm -hmm. to that. I mean, I don't think anybody can understand a mother doing that to their own child. Um, and it was something that did impact me significantly. And then... Um, and I have, you know, I have a great crew that um, looked after me that day, the comms, Sergeant at comms rung me and, and checked in on me. And, and just to hear that voice, that familiar voice at that time, which was the first time I'd actually had contact, you know, was just such a relief to me, you know, someone just saying, are you okay? And yeah. we'll get someone there to help you out. Um, and then the detectives turned up and um, and I was relieved and, um, one of my best mates actually turned up and took me back to the station where I found out she passed away. I think one of the hardest things um, then was uh, uh, getting debriefed. And I think at that time I was in a really, um, like, I couldn't believe, of course, I think I was in shock and I didn't know that I was in shock. Um, and the psychologist attached to the police service contacted me on the phone 
and she wanted to know if I was okay. That was the first thing she said to me. And it was a sentence that I hated for ages and made me angry Mm -hmm. because in that moment in time, you know, we always, when someone asks you something, sometimes you have so many thoughts going through your head before the words come out. And I think at that time I'm there and I'm going, how the fuck do you think I am? Like, what a stupid question to ask me. Yeah. I'm not okay. But, and it made me, and down the track, it made me quite angry that, um, you know, I wasn't, it was, um, a phone call I could have done without and a question I could have done without mm-hmm. um, and, and could have been asked in a really different way um, mm-hmm. because I don't think anyone was okay that day, you know. Um, there's always I, ways to ask things without being so direct as well. If they want to know you're okay, there's many, many other ways to go about it. I think so. I think, you know, um, from that perspective, you know, I understand what's happened today. I want to check in, check in with you. Have you got a minute to chat to me? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then it's up to the person at that time because, you know, when we've had a critical incident, whether or not you want to talk immediately to, you know, sometimes you can't. Um, and then because I was a doctor cop at the school, I, um, well, looking back now, <laughs> I stupidly went to my boss, the senior sergeant, um, who was a lovely um, countryman and asked him if I could go to the school because my partner was still at the scene um, working with all the specialist teams there and um, and he said yes and the reason I wanted to go to the school is because I think it's really important with kids that they know the truth as hard as it might be yeah. it's a lot easier to manage than being told stories or you know because There'd been so many rumours and things going around that I knew anyway and kids that lived in that street um, with all the emergency services running around that morning. Uh, So I went to the school and I I debriefed the principal who had no idea what to do. So I I enacted the um, emergency response under the education system. And at the time, I didn't realise, and I, as I mentioned before, like I was actually, in, you look back now and I was in shock, like I was sweaty and clammy, I felt like vomiting, mm-hmm. um, you know, that out of control sense, but I think the adrenaline so high, it takes over and you don't see that and, and feel that at the time. And um, so... And the staff there were, were really, really good who helped me coordinate um, to get all the parents to the school um, so they could take the kids home. Um, and they were at lunch at the time. And then when they came in from lunch, I think I did one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do and I hope I never have to do it again. And once they all came in and it was really hard, there was like 120 children you know, all their happy faces or hot and sweaty from, you know. Playing being, around. Yeah, being the gooses yep. they are at lunchtime and and, and I've walked in and, and then I've, I've told them what's happened and that one of their mates' lives have been lost that day and the scene was just total devastation of, of young children, which, you know, broke my heart and still breaks my heart today and I, it is one of the most difficult things for me to actually talk about. Mm. Um, and my daughter was present there at that time as well um, and she has said to me you know I never want to see you like that ever again like she said 
everything in your face and had changed that day the life that I normally saw and the smile just wasn't there and I think for a daughter to say that from her mother it was a really really hard thing for her to do mm. or to see um and so I um we had counsellors at the school as well and made sure that they were within the school premises for the next month um, to support the children and and then about a week later the funeral happened and um, it was a really nice goodbye because I organised a, a bus to take all the kids to the funeral together and I had a really nice company um, in Nambour that donated um, helium balloons, which we wouldn't do today with the mm. environmental aspects yes. and the climate and and after the funeral, we all came back to the school and they all had a helium balloon and we all went out on oval and they were in her favourite colours and the kids all went out and let the balloon go and 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 we all said, you know, goodbye at the same time. And That would have been lovely for the kids. It was, Jasmine. Yeah. It was really nice because they had a smile on their face and for me it was, it was a huge um, reward, I guess, that, you know, to be able to do that. Mm. all of them and um and then after that I went on the afternoon I came home from the school I think I'd been going it's probably about 4 30 I'd been going for about 10 hour 10 and a half hours straight I don't even know if I ate that day to be honest um and when I came home I realized my marriage was just my marriage was over so oh. Um, I walked through the door and when I walked through the door, all I really wanted was a, a hug. There was just that part of me. I, I had no, like, contact, if you know what I mean, that yeah, day. that physical. And when, yeah, yeah. Um, and all I wanted was a hug. I just needed, after all that horrible devastation, I just wanted a hug just to feel safe, just someone to say, it's a, you know, it's going to be okay. Um, and unfortunately that didn't happen and I got dealt another blow and at that moment in time I kind of felt like that it's hard to describe but and the best description is that Patrick Swayze and I just felt a part of me leave Um, and going back it's my brain had just had enough and it snapped Um, too much trauma in a small amount of time Mm -hmm. Um, and I just kind of felt I just felt like something had left me at that moment and um, and then the adrenaline, you know, I needed to get rid of the adrenaline and I went running, you know, that was the advice I was given and I'm no runner and I think I've still got no idea how long I run for but I know my daughter was worried about me. Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> I took too long and she goes, Mum, I know you can't run that far. <laughs> Oh, and um and then I got home and uh I was just I think I think I just started to slow down and, and it hit me like what happened that day and I had a wonderful girlfriend come up and spend the night with me and um I think you know the next few weeks I was just going between no sleep with the nightmares and the vision of the murder um and then when I did sleep, you know, and I'd wake up and I was just crying yeah. um, every morning. But I went to work every day. 
afterwards. Yeah. And Do I you just think pushed that um in some in some ways yes mm. um because at the time because back then PTSD was really very new um and and still you know being a female officer still getting that I had to prove myself that little bit more yeah. um, you know there was a few old dinosaurs that would you know, give you the hard time. And, and I didn't want to look like I couldn't keep doing my job. Like, you know, because I think, you know, other people go to murders, you know, other people deal with really difficult things. So, well, guess what? I've just done mine. So, mm-hmm. you know, put on your big girl britches and pull them up and, and just keep going. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did. And I think in essence, the keeping going and not, I guess, crumbling in in the gentle sense of saying you know I know some people have gone through hard things and they haven't been able to get out of bed I think the thing that kept going and having those people around me that knew what I went through that day Mm -hmm. and had my back so and it's not that and like one or two people would talk to me um but they just knew what they went through and it's that silent comfort of company where you don't have to have the conversation but you know that those people have got your back yeah Um, it's a bit like the camaraderie and I guess what we call the blue family isn't it where it's like we all experience somewhat of the same incident so we know yeah yeah it is it's that you know that eight hours in the shift with the car in the car sorry with your mate and you know what you've seen you know what you saw the conversations and um and your normal friends, so to speak, mm. I don't see that. Um, and it is very different to understand um, and to explain um, to family and, and to other friends. <clears throat> yeah, I think and, it's that line between like, do you want to tell them something? I found this a, a big barrier is I didn't want to concern my family and my normal friends, as we say, um, about what my job is and what I go to. Um, but then I also wanted them to know what I was going through. So it was I almost like fabricated the stories sometimes just so I could get a little bit out there. <laughs> yeah, like you don't want to go home and, and tell your family that, you know, you went to an incident today where a mental person actually had a a grade um grave dug who was trying to take out a police officer hiding in the bushes mm. and you were lucky that you that you all went right instead of left or he was there ready to take you out. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Don't want to concern the, them with that. Um, yep. And the violence, as you know, that sometimes you've got to deal with. Um, and then I kept working uh, and I, I had actually applied to go into the intelligence area prior to this incident um, and there was a part of me that was just begging for that to happen. I didn't want to be on the road and have to face. I knew if I faced another incident like that, that I just wouldn't cope. Yeah. Um, and so I was really glad when I got into the intelligence area and I loved it. I just thrived on it. And mm-hmm. I think um, for me, the and the PTSD was definitely there. Um because the first night I went back, I was on night shift and I sat down at the computer and I'd never had anxiety. Like I'm, I'm really easy going. And I remember sitting there and just feeling like hot, mm-hmm. clammy, and I was really stressed. And I was actually having an anxiety moment and I didn't know it. 
Um, and I just thought, shit, what's happening to me here? But I just kept going. Um, and, you know, those things like that disassociation, the detachment, it started, you know, at that time, I, you know, around that time, if I look back and, and it increased over time mm-hmm. um, because I didn't understand what actually happened to me. And my brother-in-law encouraged me to put in a work cover claim, not from the perspective of, you know, getting a financial settlement, but just from the fact, as I said earlier, that if something did happen again to protect myself, yep, that it was recorded yeah. and I'd get looked after. Yeah. So I did do that and I was diagnosed with PTSD mm-hmm. um, and I was, you know, diagnosed that I was incapacitated to a certain percent, but I was just basically told, you'll get better over time. Mm-hmm. That was it. Right. And <laughs> I went, that help? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I just kind of went, okay, I'll get better. Radio. And nothing was really explained. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have the information that's out there today mm-hmm. um, I think it's awesome the information and all the little you know support groups and people trying to do their bit like like yourself um, you know the more we talk about it the better it is yeah absolutely um, and so and I, I so I just got on with it um, I ended up being you know a single mum and raising those two kids on my own and working the full time with really high level jobs and so I went instead of being that person I think people can crumble, so to speak, and I say that with kindness, mm-hmm. where it's very hard to get up and get going every day. Yeah, I went the other way. I was hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. I had that adrenaline going through me, and I just didn't stop. And I think that's a real um, significant um, attribute when people just don't stop, don't sit still. Yeah. You know, for me to sit down and and just relax on a Sunday and watch a movie like. I didn't do that had to keep going keep occupying myself because if I did stop essentially I had to deal with all the noise in my head yeah I've seen people that will actually exercise excessively Mm. stop the mental but so it's the physical pain rather than the the mental pain which is I feel like what you're talking about there is if you stop it's you've got all your thoughts and you don't want to be among them yeah yeah so um and I mean, I was like that, you know, I'd always be doing something. Mm. But then the other side of things was I also had a lethargy with things that really didn't matter. Like um, I'd take the washing off the line, but I wouldn't fold it and put it away. Yeah. Um, so it, it was, yeah, it was, it was a really kind of, I didn't sleep um, for 13 years probably. Um, I would have gone to sleep maybe 10, 10.30 at night, sleep for a couple of hours. I'd be awake till about three mm-hmm. and then up at five. And then for, for me, um, going to bed wasn't an enjoyment. It wasn't restful. I didn't rest. Um, I couldn't wait actually to get out of bed. So that keeping going. So at five o'clock, I'd be up <clears throat> and for 13 years, I'd saw every sunrise there was. Well, there's a little positive maybe. <laughs> but it also really calmed me. I Like if I didn't go walking that, you know, for some reason, if it was pouring rain, mm-hmm. getting up and going walking and, and it was in the dark and then, you know, just listening to the birds waking up and the sun coming up and seeing the day start, it had a really calming 
effect yeah. on me for the day. Um, and then I ended up leaving the police in 2011. Um, I just knew that something was really wrong mm-hmm. with me. Um, and I did ask for 12 months off, but yep. um, I wasn't granted that. That surprises um, me. So, yeah, I think at the, and again, I say like at the time, because getting the the mental um, support through the psychologist, through the QPS at the time, wasn't an easy thing. Like it took weeks and months of battling emails to say, Mm. I need help. I need to go and see a psychologist Mm. because I got assigned to work on the Daniel Morecambe case, which I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, as an intelligence officer because I didn't want to be looking at child trauma all day and what Mm. adults were doing to children all day every day it's not that I didn't want to do the work I was more afraid that I would let the team down from a professional perspective that I'd miss things yeah um and um so I was basically told I was going there so you know and I, I kind of had a real setback at that time uh, and and uh, I ended up, you know, asking. That was like one of my battles to try and get psychological help. Mm-hmm. And um, and I did find a good psychologist, you know, who taught me coping mechanisms at the time with the information that I was dealing with. But again, nothing nothing was straightforward or recognised. Like Helen went to a murder. Yeah, okay, she needs help. It yep. was, well, why do you want it? And it just kept going, going, going. Um, and then when I left in 2011, I went into hospitality management for about six years. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I actually found a trauma psychologist for the first time who actually, and that was the time that I started healing. So that was probably after about eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd lived with that real weighty, foggy feeling and you just get up every day and you just feel like you've just got this mountain on top of you and your brain I mean can do your job there's not a problem but it's just that I guess the best description with the fogginess with PTSD from my perspective is it's like a sponge full of water Mm -hmm. inside your head trying to get the messages through the sponge if you know what I mean yeah yeah um and uh, and she pieced it together and explained to me how my brain had shut down that day because I'd really this detachment for me was quite acute because I sit here and would laugh with you, but I wouldn't feel it. Yeah. I'd feel sad, but I wouldn't feel it. So my my brain had basically said, Helen, enough and shut me down and basically said, Okay, you just eat, sleep and breathe. That's it. I wasn't really allowed to feel things like, mm-hmm. you know, because as soon as it, as soon as I kind of got into a situation where, you know, a trigger might happen, then I'd react. Yeah. Or yeah. I'd have an anxiety or, you know, I'd just, or I'd completely withdraw. Mm. My brain would just go, no, don't get involved in this. And I'd just go quiet and withdraw. And I didn't understand any of that. So when having a psychologist start to explain that to me and know that, I was okay it was just something that happened Mm. and this is what the brain does was a really turning point for me and then I moved to um 
and I saw her for a while and, um, and, and she really did help me piece together other aspects of my life and the emotional trauma from my marriage and yeah. other things, which, um, you know, a lot of police women go through as well mm. and you don't realise or you just don't say it. Yeah, I think um, my friend put it in a good analogy is like a lot of the times it's like that Tupperware container cupboard that you have in your kitchen uh, and you just kind of keep putting the containers in there and then one time you open it and they just all come flooding out and you're like, yeah. oh, now I've got to yeah. clean this up. Yeah. <laughs> and then I I was really missing working in the community. I like I really loved community work mm-hmm. um, and my kids had grown up and um, so I just decided to throw it out there and, and, and see what was what was around and I ended up getting a job working in community corrections in the Northern Territory Um, and I spent six years up there and working case management you know with um, and a lot of Indigenous adults and the -hmm. the children and working in communities and I learned a lot from the elders and um, the senior Australian of the year and the words that she speaks about, you know, grounding yourself in the outback and finding your spirit. Mm. Um, And I think that's what the Northern Territory really did do for me because I I made a decision for me, um, which, you know, a lot of people didn't want me to go back there Mm -hmm. and, um, and then just embraced, you know, all that space and the spirit I don't know there is something about the Northern Territory that's unique just really opened your mind and let it all it it did and I I think the open spaces too it just gives you that sense of you you're not in you know I think because with PTSD I think you've got a lot of noise going on in 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 your brain and and coping just whether it's day-to-day and everything else that's going on so I think because it was such wide open spaces and peaceful and quiet it just gave you that I don't know that sense of I don't know um it's hard to describe was it a (laughs) bit of like clarity or um just time and space like you said time to heal but you didn't know you like you hadn't had yet of your PTSD you didn't really know how to deal with it but then you've, you've taken that away and now you've got clarity and a bit of space to actually yeah, I think without knowing, that's what it did. Hmm. Um, and then I found I, um, and I, I was better, but um, like with the bits of psychological help that I'd got and identifying certain bits of triggers and regaining, because, you know, I lost my confidence. Um, I couldn't save the little girl. Mm-hmm. And and that shattered my confidence um, because I felt that I failed and that word is such a harsh word. Um, and I didn't fail. Um, you know, I did everything right that yeah, day. Yeah, everything you um, could have. Yeah, but holding on to her light, her hand and, and willing her to live was a really big and that connection it, um, really taught me, you know, the important things in life, you know, like I held on to life basically. Yeah. And, um, and really, you know, so I, and it's, I guess the impact of that is this really simple life that I live and the simple things that really do make me happy. Yes. Um, and so I had a really bad anxiety reaction one day with a friend and 
I just hated it. I was really, really bad. Um, and at that moment in time, I just went, I've had enough, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm sick of it. I really want to know how to, I want to beat this. Mm. <clears throat> I was determined to beat it. And so I sat down and, and I did research and I, and I had a look and then um, the EMDR, the eye movement desensitisation um, therapy had been started and um, especially with um, defence. And so the research that I did um, showed how um, successful it had been in resolving PTSD. So I inquired and I found this amazing psychologist in Darwin who um, who took me through EMDR mm -hmm. and um, and also taught me a lot of grounding techniques that I think are really important just day to day anyway um, that I still use today um, and I had to learn those to actually do the EMDR. Yeah. <clears throat> so with the EMDR, it's um, it's an eye movement that they do. It's it, I always think it's funny when you know people talk about different kinds of therapy like mental health mm. therapy and I don't know why I always get to think people get this vision of you know Maxwell Smart with this big head and the wires coming out yes you know yeah absolutely yeah and it's nothing like that at all um and so they actually they actually walk your brain and I've learned a lot about the brain the brain actually walks you through your trauma mm -hmm. So you map out your most severe traumas and then work your way down to your least severe. So, and of course, my most severe was, um, was of course, this murder. Um, but all the other events after stacked on top. So what actually happens is because your brain shuts down and the memory doesn't get stored properly like normal memories, mm. every other traumatic event after that stacks on top like a cd rack mm -hmm. which is why i think people after years end up breaking because it then becomes too much yeah because the memories don't get filed like they should or normally would um and so and it fascinated me and so the brain just actually walked me through that day mm -hmm. And so every, I'm, I'm not even sure of the timings, Jasmine, but it was like every 30 seconds or 45 seconds stop and then the brain would take you to a new point through your memory mm -hmm. and you have to keep going until you reach your safe space wow. and everyone has their own safe space. So mine was in water because water is almost my peaceful place. Mm -hmm. But it was really interesting in that each time I did a session on EMDR, my brain would always go through three final memories and the first one was my kitchen because I love to cook and I didn't even instigate that it's just where my brain would take me I'd end up in my kitchen and then I'd end up with a picture of me and my two children and then I would end up in my safe space so it was like my brain was gradually taking me to there and then from that moment on and so it's like a therapy that stores those memories so from that day on, I slept three weeks, 12 hours a day oh, wow. without waking up. And was that first from, from the incident? Amazing. Yeah. So for 13 years, I didn't sleep. And then I did the, the first, after the first session of DM, EMDR, I slept for 12 hours every How day. How did that feel? <laughs> I couldn't believe it the first night. 
because it was kind of like I felt exhausted because you actually feel it's funny when you do the sessions your brain is actually working like the psychologist says to you you know your brain will be active so to speak for 24 Mm -hmm. hours and then you know and it you do kind of feel like I don't know like you're buzzing kind of thing yeah um, but yeah, I remember I, was, I just felt really exhausted because it was exhausting doing those sessions and because um, you've got to face it. Yeah. And the big thing is you've got to face it and you've got to talk about it. Um, and so I went to bed at nine o'clock and it was a Saturday night and then I woke up Sunday and I think it was even after nine o'clock. And I couldn't believe it. And I just went, oh, my God, I've just slept. I think I was so excited. I can't remember who I called, but I called somebody. That's so good, like triple check the time just to make sure <laughs> yeah, you it's like, right. what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right. And then it's like, wow, I didn't even get up and go to the toilet. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even know if I rolled over in my sleep. <laughs> um, and then, and then I, I did about another five sessions of EMDR and um my psychologist at the time then said um and we did a few bit of sessions after after that and she just basically said that she felt that I had done all that I could to resolve it Mm -hmm. um but that sense of loss because I'd lost the sense of loss that trigger was so significant that day she said it would possibly be a trigger to me for the rest of my life yeah and I know that it is I I do like I find saying goodbye difficult and I do find that sense of loss hard Mm -hmm. as to face as well but moving on from there and then life just got and me just got lighter and better just over time and that clarity in my mind came back it's really hard to describe and you just Mm -hmm. got and you got that kick in your step Mm. so to speak um and uh and I just got better and better and then I just remember one morning waking up just before I I left to come down to Adelaide and I just went wow I feel happy like that would have been so incredible yeah I I I had that sense of happiness back and for anyone who's lost it and know what it's like to lose it, like to get it back. It was just like, wow. And um, and then COVID happened and um, I was on a holiday and I think we all, I don't know anyone who wasn't touched by suicide. During, during that, time. that time. It was hard, yeah. It was hard and um, lost a few. And I actually sat down, I was, came down for a holiday when the borders first open because I was working in the courts at that time, which was so hectic because we had to convert like a lot of businesses to technology overnight. Mm. So court hearings overnight and it was a huge amount of work. And I was down in Adelaide and I penciled together a concept of what it was that I did to help me to work out um, what was going on mm. um, and and my reactions and, and the triggers because there's so many of them. Yeah. But they're all interrelated. Um, and uh, so and then I developed this concept for an app and then I sat on it. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear about this app. I am so <laughs> excited. 
Um, because I think when you when you actually start, I think the hardest thing in recovery and facing your trauma or your injury is is just that is facing it and yeah. talking about it because you don't want to. And I get that mm. it is tough and it's hard, um, but you need to. Mm. Yeah, you need it's to. the first step. It is the first step. And I have a favorite saying that I've learned, and that is um, what happened happened and couldn't have happened any other way mm-hmm. why because it didn't and I know and I and I look back now and and the big thing of why you know we always want to know why or you know um to try to change what actually happened in the past and mm-hmm. you can't um because of you know you want to know why and instead of actually saying exactly that, that that happened at that time, we carry it with us. Yes. And that's the baggage. So I developed this app and this concept and then (laughs) I just sent a random email to Adelaide University because I know that they do really good research and um, just asked if they'd be interested to help me to build it because I couldn't do the IT side of things and so a group of students doing their um, major in computer science got on board and did it and worked with me to see if the concept would work and it did and then um, the university was kind enough to grant me 100% ownership so then I could finish building it Mm -hmm. with one of the students and um, and put it to market to help others. That's amazing. So the um, concept of the app, how do you, do you mind sharing how it works? And no, not at all. So it it's basically to start the conversation, mm-hmm. because I think like if if you're one of my closest friends, for me to sit down with you and tell you the rawness of what happened and what's going on with you, is really hard, mm. and it can be brutal to hear. So. Um, and that's what it's about to start mm-hmm. the conversation so you go in and you record how you're feeling and you're linking it to an event mm-hmm. um, and then you get the op- and then uh, your thoughts and then you get a chance just to sit down and write how you're feeling and at the end of it because um, I think it's really important no matter what happens in your day you need to find the positive in it yes yeah because absolutely Building that positive mindset is so mm-hmm. crucial. And so then you end and, and you've, got to, you've got to find three positives in the last day or so. And then what happens is that all gets put together and linked to a calendar. Mm-hmm. And also there's a tab there for your conversations that just lists them in chronological order. Mm-hmm. So if I did want to, I mean, say we were married and I wanted to share that with you and I thought, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready yeah. to... I could just give you the app and you could just go through the conversation tab and read chronologically mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah, wow. Or you could go back in and have a look and just see your thoughts and your feelings that are coming up and what they're actually linked to, mm-hmm. which might help you with your psychological or counselling so, or to get support. Yeah. Then you might be able to say, oh, those thoughts and feelings keep cropping up and they're linked to, like for me, child incidents. Yeah. Like 
when something's happening with a child, I'm feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And then you can start working out why. Yeah. And then start resolving it. Yeah, um, that's amazing. So that's that's the concept of the app and and I've just put it into Google Play. And yeah. so I'm very, very excited about yeah. it. And um, yeah, I mean the the whole premise behind building it is to help others so yeah of course I think um so it's called starting the conversation or start the conversation no the app's called the mental mentor the men okay yeah so it's a tool to start the conversation yeah beautiful yeah Yeah. I um yeah that's incredible I know there's you know a handful of um mental health apps and mindfulness apps and all the rest of it but yeah to have someone created that's been through it is just you know it's amazing you're putting your own personal spin on it and that's yeah that's better than anything I feel yeah it's been a real um to come to come through it and then to be able to do that has Mm. been really well it kind of feels surreal because I didn't ever think that I'd get to this point um so yeah and it is surreal and I don't if it can help someone not had to be have to be lost so to speak like I was for seven mm-hmm. or eight years then then that's a great thing yeah that's a win absolutely yeah. it is a win it is definitely a win um I also just want to so I took a um section from your Facebook page and I would just want to read it out because I really love it um and I know that in um, message we've touched on it but it's I encourage everyone to look at mental health like physical health like a physical injury sometimes you don't know what's causing pain like a physical injury you may need specialist treatment like a physical injury you might need to do rehabilitation like a physical injury it takes time and be kind to yourself to heal and it does go on a little bit but I just I love that concept and I feel like that could be a really big thing in breaking the stigma of mental health is like you know, you go out and you train and if you do get injured, you get it treated. But why is the mental health side of it different? Yeah, I agree. And it's an analogy that, um, you know, I just strongly advocate about because I just don't think there's enough people looking at it from that perspective. Mm. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and and hence afraid to speak. And I just, and I say the same thing, like you go to the, if I've broken my elbow, <laughs> you know, you go to the doctor and you'll be over tomorrow and you'll be riding on my cast and drawing yeah. pictures and everyone's proud of you. And like you said, you do all those things to get better. And you really need to be looking at mental health injuries and trauma exactly the same way. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think... Um, even I look at it like uh, there's eight-week physical challenges. Yes. Um, and I think most people know that eight weeks isn't going to change how you diet, how you eat, you know, your physical health. Um, and they have those and then people kind of treat them their mindfulness and mental health the same way. But it's not just eight weeks. Like it's something you really need to commit to and create those habits um, yeah. to get there in the end. So it's very much the same concept, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And, you know, and just finding those positives, like, you know, you're saying Mm -hmm. and making that day-to-day and when things happen, you know, just to stop and go, okay, I'm just going to take a moment, like, before you reply, before you do whatever, instead of doing that snap, boom, and then you go, oh, why did I say that? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The emotions sometimes just come over you, yeah. Yeah, they do. 
they do yeah um well that your story it actually gave me chills and I do have the aircon on here but I'm pretty sure it was it was proper chills um thank you so much for sharing um before we do end um I if there's anything else you want to say and if not then I just want to jump into some fun experiences that you've had Sure. Um, If there's anyone who's listening who's in regional New South Wales, um, I'm doing a presentation with Narelle Fraser, who also does true crime podcasts in Wagga Wagga and Albury. So Wagga Wagga is uh, Friday the August the 12th and Albury is Saturday August the 13th. And and it's a conversation like this and to break, smash that stigma about mental health and to let people know and give that positive message. Mm, they're not alone. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. So go with the fun bit. Yes. <laughs> let's jump into some fun bits. <laughs> um, okay. Fun bits. I've got blink again. <laughs> um. <sighs> Well, I'm a short, I'm a short ass. <laughs> so it's always a bit of a um, a joke, you know, that I'm a hover, a short ass. And and one day I was at a um, traffic accident and a car had rolled over and gone into the side of a tree. And because of the uh, height, I could only just, and it was on its side, I could only just like get over the top, top of it to see the guy. He, he actually had his thigh on a um, bulb on the tree. So I was really mm-hmm. worried about his arteries in his legs so I was just standing there just peeping over and I've been talking to him for about five (laughs) five minutes saying it's okay like the ambos just stay with me trying to keep him conscious and then the next thing I hear this voice going what about me oh no I went oh hang on a minute that's not the same voice and I've gone hello and he's gone yeah and I've gone is there a second is that a second voice and he's gone yeah you've forgotten about me oh you're like no I didn't mean to (laughs) I couldn't couldn't see him and he was actually pinned under the other mate yeah um in the car and um yeah it was like one of those moments where you just went it just he almost like scared me with this voice coming out of nowhere where did that come from yeah. <laughs> it's just been so quiet and, oh, um, wow. and one day I um I was running after a um a fellow he turned up he was full of um alcohol he turned up to the house he was threatening to stab his mum and dad and we turned up right at the time that he got to the house mm-hmm. and went running out the back over this six foot high fence that didn't have any you know railings oh. so my partner who was six foot of course just like hurled over the fence and little a little you know porcupine me hobbit me scrambling up I'm trying to and I get over the fence finally and then um my partner caught up to him and he's like tapped him on the shoulder so he fell over and I've come down and um and got on top of him and tried to get his arms from underneath him to handcuff him mm-hmm. and I had one arm but the other arm he had under his um ribs and he wouldn't give it to me anyway and I just said to him you know like and I was basically you know directing him to give me his arm or pull his arm out or else and then all of a sudden I felt like this stab in my knee like this stabbing feeling and I thought fuck and I just 
dropped his hand and I've stood up and I've actually like landed on the top of a green ant's nest. Oh no. My knee, my knee had like sucker topped to the top of the green ant's nest. And I stood up and I must have had like 200 green ants on my knee, like, and oh. just biting the crappers out of me. What are and the I- chances? Oh. <laughs> anyway so and then I've brushed them off and we arrested the fellow and and the parents were lovely and they came out and they gave me ice ice to put on my knee because it like really was swelling up and I get in the car and then as we get into the car we get the call over the radio of a car versus motorbike accident and we've gone okay and it was just down the road so we had to go and then I get out of the car and I've got this like big blue cheesecloth in the ice and I wasn't thinking because we had shorts on because it was summer and I get out and I'm holding the ice to my knee and walking and the fireys are there and they're going who's helping who here Um, (laughs) oh that's wonderful I turned up to help but actually looking like I needed help (laughs) so quickly just like disposed of the yeah I went yeah no I'm good (laughs) oh that's so funny Oh, but then we, you know, we did, um, I did a lot of the covert jobs that I did. They, they were pretty awesome mm-hmm. sites, more than, you know, funny. Um, yeah. When you organise a, a regional closure of an operation and mm-hmm. there was one day with the feds and it was 3am in the morning and we're all going out to a location and there's no other cars on the road but 12 land cruisers, you know, all streamed up going down it's a pretty awesome um feeling and then uh I was allowed I was one of the first ones allowed in with the lead investigator when we went to the location because um it was like with cert the cert level you know the guys mm-hmm. that wear all the covers and you don't see them so they went in first and then um once they did all the flashbangs and and everything the fancy and, stuff yeah. yeah and then I was allowed in and um <clears throat> and go in and yeah right yeah because they also needed a female in there and go in and, and there was a girl in there and and she was turning it on like no tomorrow and and I've walked in and because you know as you know we've got a strip search for safety I want you know do a proper yeah. search for safety and um <laughs> and she was and one of the guys came in behind me and she was carrying on like a pork chop and one of the guys came in from behind me going do you need a and he was like saying do you need a hand and as he was saying that I just grabbed her turned her around and put her into the wall and I just said enough, <laughs> like, enough. and he's just gone nope I think we're right here <laughs> oh that's so good but um, they were pretty, and you know, and then you go to other locations with those guys, and you're walking down a path, and then all of a sudden the earth moves beside you because they've been hiding out all night. And yeah, yeah. And you don't know that they're actually there, and scares the crapper out of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, pretty awesome experiences. That, yeah, that yeah. I had over the over the way, and and um, and working with kids and having some successful outcomes yeah I love that um and then I guess just the last thing to touch on have you got any advice that you would want to give uh someone who's either thinking about joining the police force or I guess first responders in general because a lot of it can be very generic um for mental health or someone that's maybe recently joined just for longevity I guess yeah um 
you know, like joining the police and, and or any emergency service. And I mean, I guess like we've discussed, it's a camaraderie and a friendship mm. that is very unique. Mm. Um, and if you are joining, draw on that. And my, all my advice is to keep diversifying. Don't sit still. Mm. Keep diversifying and don't stay in the one area because um, especially within the police, there's so many different sections you can go into. Um, and be prepared. You are going to see and hear things that no ordinary person sees. Um, and it's make sure you've got those self-care things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do go to something serious, then talk about it yeah. and reach out sooner rather than later um, and, and get that help. Mm. Um, but it is a good job. It's not an easy job at times, mm. but it can be a really rewarding job. Um, and I guess that's my main message mm. and to make sure you've got that support system around you. So you need to be aware that you're going to be dealing with those kind of things. Yeah. Drunks in the pubs, getting abused. You will get assaulted. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. People will verbally abuse you for no reason whatsoever. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, you learn some amazing skills um, that you can carry with you wherever you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I certainly, you know, the skills and, and the knowledge that I learned as an analyst is still to my core today and mm. in jobs that I do. Yeah. Um, so even if you don't make it a 30-year career, even in the paramedics, I know people have got out and then they get into places like New South Wales Resilience and, and do really good work. So mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, having that plan behind the thought as well. Well, yeah. if I only stay in 10 years, mm. that's okay. And then, you know, I'll keep doing, and know your interests and what you're strong at. Yeah. And I keep going that's... from there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I um, have seen, and even myself um, personally, once I joined, I was like, oh, this is it forever. Um, yeah. But it's not that at all. Like you learn so many skills that are actually transferable, even though people are like, oh, but, you know, it's not. It is absolutely is like my people skills because of dealing with all these other people all the time and, you know, the the networking that you have to do and the liaising with all the different sections for all the different jobs that you go to. It, it yep. teaches you amazing things. Oh, definitely. And, I, and I've seen, you know, I'm on a few groups on Facebook and, and you do see people saying I'm getting out mm. but I'm not really sure where to go, what to do and are my skills transferable? Absolutely. Like, yeah. you know, coordination, communication, exactly what you're saying. Yeah stakeholder engagement you actually just need to just sit down and go this is actually what I do I'm not a police officer yeah and a lot of people look at you and go oh police officer gun handcuffs mm-hmm. car with sirens yes and you know when I go for job interviews I always um, transfer the wording you know project operation mm-hmm. yes it's the same thing it's just a different thing yeah. and um and align it and like you're saying the skills you have are really really good skills yeah absolutely Mm, yeah well thank you so much for joining me that's Uh, right I am so excited for your app I think that is incredible um and also for anyone that is in those regional towns to go to those events because that would be amazing um if I was there absolutely I'd be going but Queensland is not all that close to the, to the <laughs> we might get there we might get there 
<laughs> I'd like to get there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure um, we'll stay in contact. Yeah, we will. You oh. take care, Jasmine. Right. And thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I don't know about you guys, but Helen is totally inspiring with what she is doing. Her story gave me chills, but to see the light at the end of the tunnel and her smiling throughout the whole podcast was amazing. I hope you guys have enjoyed and tune in again for episode four.